Our sermon today is taken from Psalms 88. Here is the word of the Lord. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you and incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape, and my eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayers come before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors and I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me and your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long and they close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Thus says the Lord. So friends, we're still continuing in our series through the book of Psalms. And each preacher is to choose a psalm of their choice and preach it until we come back to our series in the book of Romans a few weeks from now. So I chose Psalm 88, not knowing how depressing it was going to be. Like I read it and I knew it was a sad psalm, but you know, I thought after studying it, I would see some spark of joy in there that I perhaps didn't see in my first read. And I kept reading and I kept studying and there just wasn't, (laughs) there wasn't much joy in there. And most commentaries I, I read actually would say this psalm is the saddest psalm in the whole Psalter, in the whole Bible. And look, academics don't really talk like that. When they make big claims like that, they would usually say, you know, this seems to be the saddest psalm in the Psalter, or most, you know, most uh, would argue this is the saddest psalm in the Psalter, but, but for this one, they just, they just went ahead and said it. This, this is it. This is the saddest psalm in the Psalter, in the Bible. <laughs> and if you read the title, it's written by a guy named Heman. Who is Heman? Heman is pretty much the leader of David's worship band called the Sons of Korah. Not a bad band name, if you ask me. And this band, or this choir, if you like that better, right, wrote many different psalms. And one of them is, is, is probably a psalm that you're familiar with, Psalm 42. It's the one that starts off by saying, As the deer pants for uh, the streams, for the waters, I, my soul pants for you, O God. You know, that one has been sung a lot. I'm sure you guys have uh, read it a lot, heard it, preached on a lot. Also, Psalm 43, 49, uh, 84, 87, they've done a, tons of psalms. Now, what, why did I choose this particular psalm, Psalm 88, uh, for our sermon today? Is it because I'm depressed in quarantine? Maybe. But also, because it's comforting. It's comforting. How so? Well, don't you see what God is trying to tell you here 
by including the psalm in his Bible. He's saying, if, if you're going through what Heman's going through, don't feel alone. Heman went through it. And David went through it, all the psalms of lament that he wrote. Um, don't be surprised. God's not. He knew his people would feel this way, this side of eternity. Just look at Heman's prayer. He included it in the Bible. And don't be embarrassed. Don't be embarrassed that you're feeling it. God included Heman's depressing prayer in his word because apparently God's not embarrassed to be associated with people who feel these kinds of emotions. You're not alone. Don't be surprised. Don't be embarrassed. See, it's comforting. But beyond that, it's not just comforting. It's instructive. It's instructive because God in this psalm is, is giving us a glimpse of what's going on inside of the head and the heart of one of his faithful servants, Heman, during the dark night of his soul. And, and there's some amazing insights, I think, that we can learn from this psalm as we enter into Heman's head and heart here. Okay, there's a lot we can learn. I just want to point out three things about Heman in this state of darkness. Let's take a look at how he prays to God, how he thinks of God, and how he hopes in God. Okay, let's see how Heman prays to God, thinks of God, and hopes in God. First point, how he prays to God. I think it's evident from this psalm that Heman thinks about prayer a little bit differently than most of us think about prayer. I think, at least, that when most of us think about prayer, we think of it as a spiritual exercise, right? We think of it as something that we do in order for us to grow as a Christian, which is correct, which is true. That, that is what prayer is. But for Heman here in Psalm 88, prayer wasn't just a spiritual exercise he's got to do to grow. It, it seemed like it was more of an oxygen tank that he had to breathe through if he's ever going to survive. There's more of a desperation to his concept of, of prayer. Now, you know, no one can claim for sure that this is true, but I'm fairly certain that if the human of Psalm 88 was alive today and he went to a psychologist or to a counselor, he'd, he'd probably by, be diagnosed with at least a minor case of clinical depression, right? At least. And I don't know if any of you have experienced, you know, clinical depression before or perhaps something like it, but if you have, then you know. You know how weak you feel. You know how your energy feels like it's been sapped out of you, been drained out of you, and, and you literally can't do anything. You can't do anything except the things that you absolutely need to do in order to make it through the day. That's all you have energy to do. And, and often, even something as necessary as eating your meals don't even make it to the list of the things you need to do to get through the day, right? You literally just have energy to do things that's immediately self-soothing, like binge-watch Netflix, right? Or stuffing your face with chocolate or sleep. Those are the kinds of things that make your list. But this is, I think, incredible. For Heman, somehow, prayer made it to the list, it made it to his list. Look at what Heman is doing here in verse 1. In his state of depression, he's crying out day and night before God. He prayed all day. You know, verse 2, he's crying to God. He, he's praying. You know, was he, was he strong? Was he, um, did he have some energy left? And was he just not that sad maybe? No, look at verse 4. He says, he admits, I'm a man who has no strength. He's, he's sad out of his mind. His energies left him, but yet he prayed. And look, the idea here isn't, 
Oh my goodness, Heman is so strong, you know. He still had the energy to pray, even in his darkness. No, it's not that. It's rather this. Heman had no strength left in his darkness, so he had to pray. You know, we got to flip our thinking. Prayer here for him is is a need. When you're exhausted, you don't say, I just don't have time to sleep. You don't say that. When you're starving, you don't say, I have no energy to eat. No, you eat or else you can't function. You need to eat. When you're sad, you don't open your calendar and see if there's an opening for you to cry. You just cry. See, what sleeping is to a tired man, what eating is to a hungry man, and what crying is to a depressed man, prayer was to Heman. And I wonder if, if most of us, if we sterilize the concept of prayer, I wonder if we've kind of placed it neatly under this category of spiritual exercising, and that's it, that's all we categorize that. And, and we offer it up to God only when we have neat sentences to say. If that's all prayer is to you, it's never going to make your list. Look at how Heman prayed here. It's not neat at all. He was all over the place. Uh, He was described as crying to the Lord, verse 1 and verse 9 and verse 13. He was hollering to God. He was even contradicting himself while he's praying. Look at verse 14. This is interesting. Heman says, O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? And John Calvin gives an interesting explanation here. He said, if Heman thought he was cast away by God already, he certainly would not have persevered in prayer. The only reason why he's praying is because he knows he's not cast away yet. But even then, he can't help and say, oh Lord, why have you cast me away? See, he's crying, he's hollering to God, his thoughts are kind of all over the place, all jumbled up, he's contradicting himself with his words. He was also exaggerating things. Look at verse 15. Heman said, I'm afflicted and close to death from my youth up. You know, it's kind of like he's saying, you've always afflicted me, God. You know, kind of like when you and I perhaps say, you've never been there for me. <laughs> That's a bit of an exaggeration. You know, is that, is that true? Has Heman always been this close to death since his youth, <laughs> since his childhood? I don't know. You know, he has a blessed position in the kingdom. He's David's choir leader. He's a prophet Samuel's grandson you know, who's very well respected by, uh, by, by Israel at the time. There's definitely people who's had it worse. You know, to say you've always afflicted me, I, I don't know, you know. It, it's, it's likely that he, he, he was so despondent, he was so depressed and sad, he, he cried, he was contradicting himself all over the place, he was exaggerating. He was even bargaining with God. Look at verse 10 to 11. He kind of proposed a trade with God here. He said, do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness is Abaddon? He's saying, look, God, if I die, I can't praise you, you know? If I die, what does that say about your loving kindness? What does that say about your faithfulness? Come on, you know, help, help me out a bit so I can praise you, you know? It's for your sake. It's for the sake of your name. He was crying. He was self-contradicting. He was exaggerating things. He was even falling into a bit of bargaining here with God. Now, we're not saying these things are okay to do, okay? Even John Calvin comments about this, about Heman's prayers, and he says, and I quote, his prayers can't all together be vindicated. It can't all together be vindicated, okay? 
This is not, God here isn't encouraging his people to barter with him. God isn't encouraging his people to exaggerate facts and to contradict themselves in, in prayer. All God is saying, that prayer doesn't have to be boxed in a neatly category under spiritual exercising. It's much more dynamic than that. Prayer is where life meets God, and neither of those things are neat. It's not. Charles Spurgeon preached once on Psalm 88, and he said this, Do you lack words? Pray still. Your eyes will aid you with their liquid pleas. Then he goes on to quote a poem that I think describes Psalm 88 quite nicely. He said, I think he's quoting a hymnal at this point, it's prayer is a soul's sincere desire, uttered or unexpressed, the motion of a hidden fire that trembles in the breast. It's the Christian's vital breath, the Christian's native air, his watchword at the gates of death, he enters rest in prayer. You see what, what that poem is saying there? Prayer is your native air. When you, when you pray, this poem says, you're breathing in heaven's air, the oxygen of your true country. And, and when this world drowns you under, the Christian gasps up for it. And that doesn't always look neat. But, but why isn't prayer like that for most of us? How did prayer become Heman's native air? How did it make it into his list? Well, there's two things that I want to suggest before we move on to our second point. One, it seems like it made his list because he practiced it a lot. You know, don't expect this to come naturally. Heman, remember, he was a choir leader. All he did every day is write poetic prayers. His, what he did all day was leading God's people in prayer, as, as they worship, human practice prayer every day. And, and look, that's where we got to start. If we want to ever be able to get to God during the dark nights of our soul, we got to practice praying while it's still bright. Do it now. Do it constantly. Tim Keller said it, I think, very eloquently in his book on prayer. He said, prayer can be simple, but it's not easy. Nothing great is. Prayer can be simple, but it's not easy. Nothing great is practice. Practice it day and night. Make it as natural as breathing is while it's bright. Or else what you're going to do is you're going to end up sabotaging yourself from the greatest thing that you need in the dark, prayer. Okay? That, that's the first thing, I think, why prayer become as natural to human as, as breathing is and why he automatically did it uh, when he's in the dark because he trained himself daily. Okay. Second thing, of why I think uh, prayer made it to Heman's list, I think, is because Heman had a big view of God. He had a big view of God, and that drove him to pray. His view of God is a view that we also need if we're ever going to draw near to God in our dark times, okay, in prayer, which leads us to our second point, how Heman thinks of God. Now, the view Heman has of God isn't a very popular view today, I think. Because it's a view that says God is sovereign, God is in control over every aspect of your suffering. He's sovereign over every aspect of your suffering. And if you're ever going to be drawn to God in your suffering, you have to have this view. Why? Why? And where do we see Heman having this view? Well, uh, let's take a look at it. Take a look at how Heman describes God in verse 1. As his what? As his Savior. Look at verse 1. Oh, Lord, 
God of my salvation. And Lord there is, is a Yahweh, which is, which is the name that is ascribed to God if you want to talk about his covenant faithfulness, about his faithfulness, right? Oh, oh Yahweh, God of my salvation. So apparently Heman believes God has the power to save him. God has the power to take his pain away. He's sovereign over that. Okay, great. So far, no controversy there. But here's where it gets complicated. Look, if you, like Heman, claim that God has the power to take your pain away, let me ask you this. Why didn't he use that power to help you avoid the pain in the first place? You're praying to him, meaning you believe he has the power and the ability to take it away, or else why would you pray to him? Well, if you believe that, couldn't he have used the same power to prevent it from happening in the first place? Where was his power when the, the pain first came? Logically, you're, you have to start thinking there, but see, the, we, we don't follow that reasoning of thought, and we just kind of shove it under the rug, not think about it. Why? Because then we'd be admitting something that's quite disturbing, that although God has power to stop the pain, he didn't. He didn't stop it. Look, when you have the power to prevent something from happening, but yet you don't, that's just the same as ordaining it to happen. And, and it's hard to accept that view. It really is. And I get it. But this is how Heman viewed God. Look at verse 6. Right after he said, God, my salvation, God, you have the power to save me, in verse 1, what does he say in verse 6? You, God, you have put me in the depths of the pit. Verse 7, you overwhelm me with all your waves. Verse 8, you have caused my companions to shun me. Verse 16, your wrath has swept me. Verse 18, you have caused my beloved to shun me. Heman says God. God is both the one who has the power to save him from the suffering and yet is also the one who inflicted him with the suffering in the first place. And that is logically cohesive. But it's a hard truth to accept. Why? Because it makes God look mean. It does. It, why would God do this? You know? Why would God bring him into his knees like this? And, and there's many speculations there. Some people say God brought him into his knees because Heman sinned, right? That's the most obvious answer. You know, it's a form of discipline. And that does happen in other parts of the passage, uh, other parts of the Bible. And maybe that's the case for Heman, but we don't know that. And, and the passage doesn't really say that. If anything, it would suggest otherwise. Heman's name in Hebrew literally means faithful, faithfulness. First Kings chapter 4, verse 31, Heman there is described as a man so wise, second only to Solomon. And, and if you know, a wise man of the Bible is a man who fears the Lord. So there's no sin in Heman that we're told here that's needing to be pruned or, or um, uh, he needs to be sanctified from. Okay, some say God did this. God brought Heman to his knees for his own good, right? Genesis 50-20 type thing. Uh, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Maybe, but again, that's not in the text. Look at how this psalm ends. Look at the very last word of the psalm. It's very intentional. Heman ends with the word darkness. Darkness gets the last word. And although Genesis 50 uh, verse 20 is true, that 
God does mean your good out of evil out there. The force of this passage requires us to conclude that that wasn't God's point here in this particular psalm. And here's the last one. Here's one of the more convincing reasons of why God did this to Heman. Uh, Some say maybe God brought Heman to his knees so that Heman would be able to produce such beautiful prayers like this one, right? Like Psalm 42, prayers that God will use to minister to his people for centuries. A commentator describes Heman's life by saying, and this is beautiful, "Even even a depressed man in God's hands will bear much fruit. And, and look, although this is absolutely true, and some of the most beautiful hymns have been produced by Christians who struggle with depression, yes, but yet this is still not the particular force of this particular text. It's not. You can't get there from, from here. Psalm 88 simply refuses to give an answer why. It refuses to give an answer why. We don't know why God brought him into his knees like this. And all the answers that, that I've heard in attempt to make sense of God's actions, I think has actually weakened the force of the passage, except for this one answer. This is the only answer that I found that I feel like does not weaken the text, that is wedded and faithful to the passage, and it's this. What if, what if God didn't bring Heman to his knees for any particular reason at all? What if Heman being brought to his knees was actually the end goal What if God didn't bring him into his knees for any particular reason at all? What if, what if him being on his knees was the end goal? What if helplessness leads us to prayer? And what if true prayer transforms our theology into worship? And what if worship is the end goal? What if God brings us to our knees simply because that is when we are most human? If you believe that God is the end-all, be-all, the source of life, your native heir, the one who is big enough to ordain all things, both your joys and your sufferings, the one who is covenantally faithful to you, yet also the one who inflicts you with darkness, but the one who ultimately has promised to deliver you as the God of your salvation because he loves you. If you have such a robust, big, colorful view of God, biblical view of God, like Heman did, why wouldn't you gasp at him when this world drowns you? Why wouldn't you be curious to consult him when he brings pain your way? Why wouldn't you have the boldness to be real and messy with him in the midst of your darkness? Heman prayed in his darkness, not because he had a proper view of prayer, because he had a big view of God. That's why he went to him. And, and it's amazing that Heman can have such a big view of God, especially considering what he knew then versus what we know now about God. What do I mean? Last point, how Heman hopes in God. See, Heman, yeah, he had a big view of God. He was in awe of God. He trusted God. That much is clear, right? He says, O Lord God of my salvation, in, uh, in verse 1. And he actually addresses God uh, as Lord or Yahweh, as a covenantally faithful God, four times uh, in this whole psalm. So Heman had a, had a big view of God, bigger than most of us. But yet, we actually today have more information about God than he did, don't we? What, what do I mean? 
Isn't it funny that in verses 10 to 12, Heman asked a question to God that you and I already know the answer to? We do. Look at verse 10. In verse 10, Heman asked, Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? And if you're a Christian here today, you hear that question, and you know the answer, don't you? You would say, yeah, of course he does. God does work wonders for the dead. They do rise up to praise him. In verse 11, Heman asks, is your steadfast love declared in the grave? And if you're a Christian here today, you hear that question, and and you think, yes, it is declared in the grave. His love is declared not only in the grave, but actually through the grave. Are your wonders known in the darkness? Heman asks in verse 12. And if you're a Christian here today, you'd say, yes, it is. It is declared in the darkness. (laughs) Don't you know what happened on the cross? Heman, we may think, don't you know what Jesus did? And here's the thing. He doesn't. All Heman knew is that God, by his grace, is mighty to save. And he had faith in that. So Heman, like us, was saved by grace through faith alone. But unlike us, he didn't have a clear picture of the full operation. We do. As Jesus comes out of that tomb, we know God works wonders for the dead. As we're promised resurrected life because of the death of Christ, we know that the dead will rise up and praise him. We will one day. And as we see Jesus breathe his last breath on that cross, we know that God's steadfast love is declared in the grave, and his wonders are performed in the darkest of nights. See, we have a view of the full operation, and arguably, we therefore should have a bigger understanding of God compared to Heman. Derek Kidner comments on this psalm and other psalms of lament, and he says, again, very beautifully, the very presence of these prayers in Scripture is a witness to God's understanding This shows that God knows how men speak when they're desperate. It shows God knows how men speak when they're desperate, which is true. It's true. But on top of that, for Christians who live this side of the cross, you know what else do we know? Not only that God is a God who knows our pain in the Psalms, but that God is a God who came down himself and took on the pain that he described in these Psalms. You know what Jesus Christ said? on that cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what that's taken from? That is a direct quote from another Psalm of Lament, Psalm 22. See, God didn't just write the Psalms of Lament in order to describe the pain we feel. He wrote them to describe the pain that he will one day take for us on that cross. Jesus experienced true darkness and emptiness so that we may have light and hope even while we're on our knees. He answered human's questions on that cross. And by doing so, he's declaring to the ends of the earth that there is no night dark enough that could rob him of glory. There is no grave deep enough to where he cannot perform his wonders. And there is no death final enough to fence off his steadfast love. He's bigger than you can ever imagine. And he loves you more than you ever dare to dream. So go to him. Pray. Commune with him. 
Don't wait till it's dark to pray. Pray while it's bright. Make it as natural as breathing is to you now. And behold, just how big he is. Look at the cross. He can perform his wonders. Even now, his steadfast love exists here too, even in the dark. And remember, you're not alone. You're not. The biggest lie Satan can tell you when you're depressed is that your sufferings exceeds everyone else's. That's his strategy to push you into an isolated corner and drag you into even greater darkness. Don't. That's a lie. You're in good company. Heman was there. David was there. And ultimately, God himself was there. When he entered into a darkness you can't even begin to imagine, a darkness that you and I actually deserve, you're not alone. Go to him, even when it's messy, especially when it's messy. Poor trembling soul, Charles Spurgeon said on his sermon in Psalm 88, poor trembling soul, though the path may be paved with sorrows, get you, man, to your God. Go to him, pray, commune with him, worship him. This is the reason for our existence. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your forgiveness that we often treat prayer, what we're doing now, as an opening of an event or to close a sermon or a spiritual exercise to do to grow. And it is those things, yes. But first and foremost, it is an act of communing with you. And communing with you is never a means to another end. It is the end goal. And Father, I pray that as our laments and as our darkness that you for some reason have ordained, lead us back to you. I pray that you would bring us a deeper joy in communing with you, not only in the brightness of day, but even at the darkest of nights. And as we do so, that you'd remind us of the cross, that this darkness will not crush us. It won't, because the darkness the darkness we deserve to be crushed by has been swallowed up by Christ on that cross when he declared your steadfast love and he performed your miraculous wonders through the grave so that now those who deserve to die, like me, like all of us, may one day be raised up to praise you. Help us remember this. Help us continually practice this and do this so that you may deserve the glory and the joy in which you died for, and that we may commune with our native air, with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.